Good morning and happy new year to you. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 John. We're going to intermittently work our way through 1 John. There'll be a break in there. We'll look at uh, several different Proverbs and there'll uh, be a break a couple times. But we're going to work our way through 1 John in the winter and into the spring. Today we'll look at 1 John 1, 1 to 7. Happy New Year to you. Let's pray. Father God, as we fold into a new year, we ask, Father, that we would be focused on you, growing in you, that you would be the center of our lives, the centrality of your word would be evident in us, through us. We ask, Father, that as we look at your inspired and errant word in 1 John, that you would take what you have guided John to write, inspired him to write, and apply it to our lives. Give us your insights, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. On Christmas Eve, and Christmas Eve Eve, I uh, interacted with the Magi. And in doing so, I distinguished between astronomy, a legitimate science, and astrology, a very illegitimate thing that God tells us to avoid as sinful. Astronomy looks at the celestial bodies in the sky that God has created, the glory that God lets shine into our lives, and it should cause us to look up and say, this is created by God. Astrology is attempting to replace Scripture and the Word of God by predicting the future through astrological bodies. It's very evil, and God says, avoid it. Well, I want to talk a little bit about astronomy for a moment. I want to talk about something that is called R136A1. It's a star. It's an incredible star. It was found in 1960 in Pretoria, South Africa. And it is a long way from us. It is 163 light years from us. Now, a light year is 6 trillion miles. That's like a 6 with a 12. Well, this thing is like 10 quintillion miles from us. It is a 1 with 19 zeros. That's how far away this star is. It's a long way. You think about the glory of God. You think about the greatness of God. He has made 10 octillion stars. 10 octillion. A 1 with 28 zeros in the sky and one of which we can see just visibly is one with 19 zeros miles away from us. And it's a big one. It's like 315 times the mass of our star. It's a hot one. It's like 10 times hotter than our star. And it's a bright one. It's not double the brightness of our star. It's not triple the brightness of our star. They believe it is 10 million times brighter than our star. Think if you had stock in Oakley or Ray-Ban or Aviator, it would go through the roof with this bad boy. 10 million times. They suspect that in five seconds, it radiates more energy and light than our star does in 365 days. That's unbelievable. You know how bright our star is, especially on a clear day. This is 10 million times brighter. 
and yet it's just a creation. It's a creation created by God who is infinitely brighter, infinitely lighter, infinitely purer than one of his creations. That creation being this star, R136A1. We want to talk about the light of God today. John talks about it. It's one of his key words in 1 John. Let me read 1 John 1, 1 to 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that is Jesus. The life Jesus was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, And proclaim to you the eternal life, Jesus, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him, proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. As you and I begin, we have 21 epistles, letters in the New Testament. And they almost always start the same way. They identify the author, they identify the recipient, they offer a greeting, and sometimes they even give you a little bit of the theme of the book. So we might expect 1 John to start something like this. John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the churches of Asia near Ephesus, at that time a city of about 300,000, grace and peace to you from God our Father. What we would expect then is him to talk about something in the text that that God is light and he expects you and I to walk in the light. That's how a normal epistle, a normal letter to an audience begins. And yet that's not what John does. Apparently John is so familiar to the audience, he actually lived in Ephesus, and he's towards the end of his life, he's probably 80 or 85. He's already written the gospel of John. They know him so well that he doesn't identify himself. They know they're the recipients, so he doesn't identify them. He just jumps right into it. He wants to talk about the light. He wants to talk about Jesus Christ and you and I walking in the light. That's how he begins. Now, if we look at the context of the book, there are a number of themes. I'll just suggest a few of them. The overriding theme, I believe, is that Jesus is the light. We need to look at him, look to him, look to his word, which flows into the second theme. We as Christ followers need to walk in imitation of the light. That flows into the third theme because there seems to be some infiltration of a heresy. We're going to call it proto. That means incepant or initial Gnosticism. The Greek word Gnostic is knowledge, this this new cult that teaches that you get to heaven not by faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, but you get to heaven by knowledge, this knowledge cult. 
And so John is very concerned about it. Fourth, he's concerned that people try and go it alone. He wants people to be in the church, that the church is how we do Christianity together, the one another's. And finally, he wants us to know that if we know Christ, God is holding on to us. We have a certainty of our salvation. In fact, isn't that how he summarizes the book in 1 John 5.13? He says, I write these things to you, referring to the, the, the letter that's all been written. I write this letter to you, to who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Those are kind of the themes. Now let me back up and talk a little bit about these themes. The first one, of course, is that Jesus is the light and we need to walk in light and we need to honor him. But second, he is worried about this group, these proto-gnostics, these individuals who are downplaying Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the payment of sin and faith in him alone and upplaying this Gnostic heresy that you need to be a part of the cult and you need to stay in the cult. And as long as you're in the cult, you get little pieces of knowledge and little pieces of knowledge. And after a number of years of these pieces of knowledge, you'll have enough knowledge to elevate yourself into heaven. This cult also teaches that the corporality, our bodies are worthless, they're evil. The only part of us that is eternal is our spirit. Because of this, first they're going to deny the deity and humanity of Christ, but they're also going to say, hey, what you do with your body, it really doesn't matter. And then he wants to tie the whole thing to the church. He wants us to know that the way forward is linking arms with fellow believers to do the one another's with one another, not at home. He doesn't envision people in home. Of course, he doesn't know about the pandemic, but he doesn't envision people at home indefinitely doing church on their own. So notice how he begins twice. He said, we've heard Jesus. We've seen Jesus. We've touched Jesus. Why does he mention this twice? because he wants us to understand the corporality of Jesus. He is human flesh. God, eternal, God infinite, really came down, lived a perfect life, taking on human flesh. The God-man, the hypostatic union, lived a perfect life, laid down his life for us, then took it up on the third day and offers eternal life for all who believe and receive him as Savior and Lord. Understand what this Gnostic heresy, this proto-Gnostic heresy is undermining. It's saying that no God would ever take on human flesh because flesh is evil. In other words, there's no possibility that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, if he's God, ever took on flesh because no God would do that. It may appear that he took on flesh, that's the word dokeo, which brings forth the heresy docetism, which is a subset of proto-Gnosticism. Jesus appeared to some to have flesh, but no, no, he really didn't. He was just spirit. Do we understand at the macro and micro level the damage of such teaching? At the macro level, 
you and I are dead in our sins. Oh, that's true. But we cannot be brought back alive in Christ because if Jesus didn't take on flesh, he didn't pay the penalty, the substitution, he substituting himself, the substitutionary atonement could not have occurred. He could not have substituted for us with human flesh on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin, dying, being buried, rising again on the third day. If Jesus does not take on human flesh, we are dead in our trespasses. There is no hope. There is no relationship with God. There is no redemption. There is no future hope. There is no life after life. It is a bleak picture. That's the macro damage. Think of the micro damage. The micro damage is if your body doesn't really matter, if your body is not eternal, if all you're going to have in the future in the afterlife is your spirit, whatever you do with your body, it doesn't matter, then you might as well do whatever you want. Now, I would submit to you that nobody today walks around and says, hey, I'm a Gnostic. We don't really do that. Oh, you might have some weirdo friends that do that, but nobody really does that. But Gnosticism is alive and well outside the church and sometimes in. We get this idea that it's our body and I can do with my body what I want to do with my body and nobody, not even God, has the right to tell me what to do with my body because the body doesn't matter. What, is, what does the Bible say? The body does matter. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is going to raise the body up for believers and the soul and the body will be reunited. A resurrected body, the body matters. What we do with the body matters. And yet we have this sense, it's my body, I can do with my body as I want. Isn't that one of the mantras of those who call for abortion? And abortion is something that's acceptable. It's my body. I can do with my body as I want. But God says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, including your body, including my body, he owns us. And we cannot do with our bodies as we want. Besides, I've got to say, those who say it's my body, I can do with my body as I want and use it to support abortion, that's just bad science. It's not only bad theology, it's bad science. Every cell in your body has a unique DNA code. And every cell has exactly the same DNA code. Whether it's a hair follicle or a little piece of skin, it has exactly the same DNA code. Every single cell in every person's body. But when a woman becomes pregnant and a child is in the womb, every cell in that child has the same DNA code as all of his cells or her cells, but that DNA code is utterly different than the host mother. Host mother. It's bad science to say, this is my body, I can do with my body as I want. No, you're a host, but what is in the womb is a different body, and God owns it as he owns your body. This idea that it's my body, I can do with it as I want, leads to licentiousness. 
It leads to all sorts of sexual expressions that are outside the will of God. God owns us. He claims he owns our bodies. And he sets up the boundaries for sexual expression only in a marriage of one man, one woman, a husband and wife. You see, Gnosticism has a lot of damage. At the macro level, it undermines the substitutionary atonement of Christ. At the micro level, it undermines how you and I live our lives. And in contrast to such darkness, that's John's word for any philosophy that is not rooted in Scripture, in contrast to such darkness, John writes this in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. The Greek text is actually even starker. It says, God is light, there is no darkness, no none. It's a double negative. We wouldn't use a double negative in POW 101 because the teacher, she or he, would have read all over it, right? They don't like double negatives in English. But in the Greek text, it's like bolding. It's like underlining it. It's like making it something really special. God is light. There is no darkness, none whatsoever. What are the implications of this? The implications are that God does not wink at darkness. God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't ignore sin. God is not indifferent to sin. Sin does not amuse God, sin is darkness, which is the opposite of the light of God. God is light. In this regard, I think of a guy named Ray. Ray has a family business, and what they do is they shampoo rugs in people's homes. They actually advertise that they are experts at homes in which you have a pet, because whether you know it or not, there are probably urine crystals in your house from the pet. And how he illustrates if he gets in the door is he darkens the room and then he has a black light that actually illuminates urine crystals. He says the reaction is always unbelievable. They darken the room, he turns on the black light and, and people see urine crystals on the carpet, sometimes on the shades, sometimes on the drape, sometimes on the wall. He says, he's had people say, hey, I don't care what it costs. Clean it up. He had a homeowner say, I will never be safe or feel safe in my house again. Why? Because his black light illumines the darkness. That's what Jesus Christ does. His light illumines the darkness. In fact, what does scripture say? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light under my path. God wants us to be in the light, to learn the light, to follow and obey the light. Jesus is light. And it's so different to how sometimes we react. My bad, no fall, no harm. Everyone's doing it. No. Jesus is the light and he calls for his followers, you, me, us, to live in the light. I think of what we'll look at next week, which talks about how when we sin, not if, when we sin, we need to confess. I think of 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the truth actually is not in us. So it behooves us, it behooves me to think deeply about sin. I'm going to put up a virtue vice list. That's a, a list of sins that are common. They're in no particular order. I didn't think of any of you when I was writing the list. It's just a list of sins, some of which I struggle with, some of which I have victory, some of which you struggle with, some of which you have victory. It's different for all others, all of us. Sins like pride. Okay, that's probably all of us. Complaining, drunkenness or substance abuse, stealing, dishonesty, materialism, gossip, slander, failing to forgive others, cheating on taxes, pornography or impure thoughts, sexual intimacy outside of a husband-wife relationship, not making God our priority in prayer or Bible study and corporate worship, profanity or crude language, not honoring one's spouse, not prioritizing God in the home, not raising our kids with God first, not giving God the priority of our time and our talents and our treasures, not loving our neighbors, being covetous, uncontrolled anger, bitterness, a lack of joy. I think more than likely for most of us, certainly myself included, there are several of these sins that I see in the text and I say, oh my, there is work to be done in this life. And I start with confess, I agree with God. And then I ask God's spirit to empower me, to cause me to turn from sin and towards righteousness. God wants us to address sin. I think of a guy named Pastor Bud Robinson. He was preaching about sin, specifically the sins of gossip and the tongue. And I guess the sermon was quite convicting because afterwards uh, a gal came up and said, you know what? I really need to lay the sins of my tongue, gossip, and slander on the altar. And Pastor Bud looked at her incredulously and said, you want to lay the sins of your tongue on this altar? I guess we can try, but our altar's only 16 feet long. Now that's not very gracious, is it? And God is so much more gracious. But God does deal with sin. He takes sin seriously. Your sin and my sin. And when we address sin, I think there's two polar opposites. The one is to dismiss it as no big deal. It is a big deal. And if we dismiss sin as no big deal, I think we need to memorize John 1, 5, and 7, that he is in the light and we are called to walk in light. The other opposite, polar opposite, is we get morose. And we're so overwhelmed by our sin that we kind of immobilize ourselves and we begin to get so morose, we say, I've lost it. He loves me? Nope, he loves me not. I'm out of the family of God. And I think that's why John, this is a hard-hitting letter, I think that's why John, at the end of the letter, says, hey, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things, I write everything I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
he doesn't want us on either of the polar opposites. He doesn't want us to minimize sin. To those of us who minimize sin, he says, Jeff, boy, you need to understand that I am light and you are to walk in the light. That my word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You need to get with the program. But to those who end up in morose, immobilization, I think he wants us to memorize 1 John 5, 13 to know that our sonship and our daughtership is not lost every time we sin. It is God holding on to us. I think when we get that morose, we forget God's grace and we forget God's forgiveness, his mercy. He wants us to live as children of the light. We begin living as children of the light by praying and receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Then we begin to study his word and make his word the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path, not just for head knowledge. We study the word for life application, for transformation. We get into Bible study. We get into prayer. We get into corporate worship. We do the one another's, one with each other. We do church life together. The children of the light, we seek out biblical truths and we keep short accounts with God. We have confidence, 100% confidence with Jesus on the throne. And we don't replace Jesus on the throne with politics. Jesus is preeminent for children on the throne. We're driven by biblical truths rather than political correctness. What do children of the light do? They love God preeminently and they love man secondarily. The first and the second greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is likened unto the first, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to live, Jeff, as children of the light. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for 1 John. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of playing with words in a way that is technical and difficult. We'll be challenged by the pronouns. Wondering, Lord, exactly who the he or she is. But God, give us wisdom as we mine your word. It's a perfect word. It's an inexhaustible word. And we pray that we would benefit richly from it. That we would not, as James say, be hearers of the word only, but we would be doers as well. That we would never be practical Gnostics, interested in knowledge but not transformation. Father, may we fall daily on the cross of Christ, embracing your son, Jesus, who died for us, was buried and rose on the third day, preaching the gospel to ourselves. And asking for you to be the centrality of our lives. May this be true. May we live in light and shun the darkness. Better yet, Lord, may we live in light and bring light to the darkness. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.